Hello. Welcome to Heroes in Psychiatry, a series of occasional interviews with people, not all of them psychiatrists, who have made a distinguished contribution to the understanding and care of people with mental health problems. In this interview, I talked to Professor Sir David Goldberg. Long before he became Professor at Manchester in 1972, he had a strong interest in classification in psychiatry, especially the disorders most commonly seen in general practice. In 1993, he returned to the Maudsley as Professor, and in 1997 he was given a knighthood for his work. I spoke to him at his home in the early summer of 2011 when he was busy working on revisions of ICD-10 and DSM-5, two of the most widely used, and some would say controversial, classification systems in psychiatric disorders. Prof Goldberg, thanks very much for finding the time to talk to me this morning. Could I start off by asking, why to have diagnosis in the first place? Well, because you have to decide who you're going to treat. It's true that the major disorders that psychiatry deals with are all dimensional, but there has to be some point on the dimension when it's worthwhile offering an intervention and asking somebody to come into formal treatment. And that applies even to psychological treatments as well as to pharmacological treatments. With pharmacological treatments, it's quite clear. With surgery, it's quite clear that you have to have a classification that tells you who has to have a treatment and who doesn't need to have a treatment. Right, so you're saying then that diagnosis in any condition, mental or physical, is about a cut-off point. Yes, now, you've said it's dimensional, but the mm. cut-off point to me sounds a bit like a category. Isn't there a bit of a tension there between the two? No, I mean, who decides what the cut-off point is for anything? Well, we do, of course. Um, and, uh, we being uh, psychiatric. Uh, yes, there's not, no, not you and me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that has to be decided. And in the um, work I'm doing with the American Psychiatric Association at the moment, it's now very much research-based, and they won't allow anything to be put forward just because clinicians have a hunch that that should be a category that they want. They have to see a, refer a research basis for it, and uh, that seems to me exactly as it should be. Yeah. Certainly. I mean, it, 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 it's good to know that research is trickling further and informing our diagnostic systems, but when I look at the diagnostic systems that are in regular use in psychiatry today, it does seem that there's a very, very glaring omission from some of the work. For example, you take depression. You look at depression, you see what is effectively a tick box of approaches, some biological, some cognitive, some social symptoms. And then you look at what we know about, say, the social manifestations of depression. Look at George Brown's work, for example. There doesn't seem to be a single whiff of the individual or the social or even the etiologic circumstances underlying depression that appear anywhere in DSM, probably DSM-5. Well, I'm not here to defend DSM-5 or 4 or 3, but would it's you be willing to defend the concept of major depressive disorder as a valid entity? Uh, yes, I would, actually. Um, although I think that divorcing it from the disability and distress produced by the symptoms is something which needs to is, produces bad effects. Uh, that is what I think you mean by your tick-box approach, just counting symptoms and well, saying if you have more than a critical number then you have a category. I don't think you do. You have to take into account the effect that symptoms are having on an individual. So I'm also a great admirer of George Brown's work, as you are, and I take that very much into account. And when you're dealing with people, you're dealing with the individual who's come to consult you, and it is most definitely um, a matter of finding out yeah. the effect that the various symptoms that have been developed have on that person and what can be done 
to how they see the problem and what could be done to help them. So you're saying then that for you an essential hallmark, beyond a criteria, a hallmark of a mental illness is an established, manifest, visible decline in function. Yes. That often seems to go by by the wayside in routine clinical practice. Well, it's because of the WHO view that um, disability and disease are completely different concepts and have to be assessed separately. Yeah. And this is something which makes a certain amount of sense in general medicine, but it doesn't make much sense in psychiatry. Why, why is that? Oh, because I think that for us to pontificate without taking account of the effect that symptoms are having is to have uh, a rather strange one-dimensional view of what an illness is. And uh, for me, you have to know the effects of symptoms as well as their nature. Hmm. Coming on from that, the, 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 not so much the effects of the illness, but the things that cause it. I mean, another thing that's strikingly absent from a lot of the conversation and understanding about depression as a concept, a category or an illness, seems to be in etiology. We get around it by saying that if it's due to bereavement, well, no, it ain't depression. That's an understandable reaction. But, but why shouldn't we you know, exclude bad news in general as a motor precipitant? I mean, where does personal vulnerability and, and, and triggering factors come into all our classification? Well, I've got some good news for you. The bereavement exclusion is being dropped by the American Psychiatric Association. Really? And if you're depressed, you're depressed. And uh, bereavement is simply one of a large number of things that can make people depressed. And uh, let me just say something controversial to you. Um, for most of my adult life as a consultant psychiatrist, I was very impressed by George Brown's work. But his later work became much more interesting to me because he began to be interested in the life cycle mm. approach in depression and not merely to the releasing factors. Your question to me a moment ago was about the releasing factors that can release an episode yes. of depression. But that's actually not the most interesting thing. The most interesting thing is why is it that some individuals with a very slight degree of environmental stress become depressed mm. and others don't. Some people can survive the most appalling yes. environmental stresses and not become depressed. And to understand that, you have to go right back, not just to their genes, but to their attachment experiences and to the experiences in early childhood. But there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of space for constitutional vulnerability and personal biography in our modern-day nosologies, it seems. Well, the nosology of the actual disorders that people develop can't possibly take into account the etiology, um, so that it would be absurd to say someone's only depressed if they had a bad attachment experience or if they were sexually abused when they were six. Other, other than that, you can have the same symptoms and it's nothing. That would be a ridiculous um, position. You mean because everybody would have their own unique diagnosis? Yeah. There'd be no point in classification? Well, it would, yeah, yeah, I mean psychiatry would descend into psychoanalysis where you don't need any diagnostic classification because everybody's going to have the same treatment. Yes. And uh, so what the hell? You, you can dispense with it. Really. I mean, some people would say that you know, the modern classificatory approach with its operational list and things was a retreat from the, the, you know, the untrammeled chaos of psychoanalysis and all its uncertainties, its mythologies. But 
But, I mean, Nancy Andreasen, you know, the, the, the great American psychiatrist, once said that we sacrifice validity for reliability. Do you think that's true? Yes, that is true. Um, the only thing well, it's that... It's an accusation of psychiatry, isn't it? No, it's not an accusation. Um, it needed to be done. When I started off as a very young student of psychiatry, the unreliability of diagnoses was so gross that they were ridiculous. Mm. And you didn't know that if I spoke about schizophrenia in London that it meant the same as schizophrenia in Brazil or Caracas. People meant different things by the same labels and the first thing that had to be done was to produce a certain reliability but now of course the interest has to move towards validity but it was essential that the first thing to do was to put the house in order and to make sure that we had reliable classifications. So we've done okay for reliability. You mm. say we have to move back to validity. How do mm. we go about doing that? Well, you, you have to think of the various correlates of diagnosis and uh, to find out what various members who at the moment attract one diagnostic label have in common with one another and if they don't have much in common maybe you have to start rethinking the, the concept and breaking it down or rearranging it. Mm. Um, we seem to have done a pretty good job of breaking it down. I mean if you look at successive classifications, ICD 9, 10, 11, there seem to be more and more categories that break down. I mean, and ICD 11 is going to be even bigger. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, where is it? If it carries on like that, then would we not ironically have reached the very situation you warned against earlier, where there are so many diagnoses, you might as well have, say, 60 million psychiatric diagnoses living in the UK? Yes. And where will it all end? I think that uh, psychiatrists are st strange professionals because they deal with disorders that have, by and large, very poorly understood physical pathology. And, uh, and that makes our subject uniquely difficult. Mm. Um, the thing I'm doing at the moment, which I'm most enthusiastic about, is trying to produce a classification which ordinary doctors can use. I don't mean psychiatrists, I mean general practitioners, surgeons, physicians. They don't use our classification, and they don't use it because it is ridiculously overcomplicated. Yes. And you cannot expect a doctor who is concerned with what the cause of your sore throat is yes. to actually also yeah. be carrying 400 different yeah. mental diagnoses. Um, it is ridiculous. Um, it would be as though you talked about someone who had a headache, they also had a fever, they had pains in their back, they had a sore throat, and that these were comorbid disorders. Yes, intermittent cough disorder. Yeah, yes. but it's called influenza, yes. that condition. And well, that's because we can recognise a syndromal level at which it makes sense as a meaningful constellation. Or pretty well all psychiatry is syndromal. Um, overlapping syndromes, that's what we have, and... Uh, People don't like to admit that. They like to think they've got these simple no. categories. Schizophrenia, and a good syndrome? No, not very. It's a, it's a whole range of different disorders, isn't it? And, uh, well, perhaps you don't agree with that. Um, <laughs> but I don't think it is a single disorder. And uh, I've, in, in looking back over all the schizophrenics I've treated, they um, are a really quite range of psychotic yes. disorders they did represent. Um, it's convenient to 
have a name for that group of disorders, but it is a group of disorders. I've, I'm fascinated by this idea of uh, the, the, the constellation, the syndrome, and the complexity of schizophrenia seems mm. to suggest that it's so much more than that. If you go back to Bloyle's original work, you know, his big four A's of ambitendence, ambivalence, mm. and associate, loosening of association, and so on, his big idea was that it's the negative defect state rather than the the things that we characteristically in a Schneiderian world associate with schizophrenia, the voices, the hallucinations, mm. the echo, and so on. But it seems to me that Bloyler warned us there were lots of schizophrenias. He used the plural quite carefully, mm. but we've thrown that away. Once so we retreated into simplicity. Do you think that all diagnosis, to some extent, is a retreat into the comforting but dangerous false comfort of simplicity? Well, inevitably, labelling something with a single word is a simplification. And, uh, a dangerous one. It's... As long as you understand it's a simplification, that's okay. If you know it is um, applying to a whole group of psychotic illnesses, mm. um, that's fine. And the reason, of course, that psychiatry subdivides and subdivides the psychoses is in order to take account of differences between, say, delusional disorders and um, schizoaffective disorders and schizophrenias, um, there are a whole range of disorders where if you spend your life dealing with psychotic people, which um, psychiatrists tend to be doing rather more than they used to, um, are useful distinctions to make and quite reasonable that psychiatry should have um, these detailed classifications providing you don't think the illnesses are things mm. and that they're completely different from one another because the they aren't things and reifying ah, exactly. uh, um, diagnoses is the worst thing you can do. Um, a psychological disorder is a hypothetical construct. It is something that we conceptualise for convenience. If we know that there are a particular set of disorders that respond to a particular kind of management, that is invaluable information for people who are in the healing profession. Um, and it is part of the purpose of a classification to present con concepts that lead to interventions. But human beings are hungry for certainty, and with rarefication comes that delicious comfort of certainty. Some people seem to be so hungry for you know, the diagnostic label, and with it, I think, they commit the act of reification. I mean, does that not get in the way of good clinical practice? I don't think ordinary people reify things much. I think it's doctors who do the reification. And, uh, but you uh, hear schizophrenia talked about in the newspapers and the radios, depression, as though it were a thing. We're told by the WHO that depression, the thing, depression, is the second commonest cause of morbidity on the planet. Well, it is... It is a pretty important disorder, and um, if if you have to, but so sadness. No, it isn't. Sadness is an important part of the human experience, but it is not an important psychiatric disorder. It is. Um, it's a single feeling, whereas depression is not a single feeling. Mm. It is a set of different symptoms, and the syndrome you're describing. It's a syndrome. Yes, it's mm. a syndromal concept. And it overlaps with other disorders. Mm. It overlaps grossly with anxiety disorders. And sadness? Ordinary sadness? No. Ordinary sadness is a much more widely distributed experience than depression is. Mm. And it, it isn't helpful to muddle depression with sadness. That's not to denigrate sadness. It's a, it's a part of being alive. But it isn't 
the same as, as depression, which is a, a set of highly disabling symptoms coming together. And one of the problems that I have with depression is not the same as yours. I think that psychiatry tends not to distinguish between anxious depressions and apathetic depressions. Yes. Um, an apathetic depression, when it's extreme, leads to a state of psychomotor retardation and slowing, whereas an agitated depression is quite different. It's a different animal. But because that we've got a single word, depression, we failed to see there were two quite different syndromes present. Although I think in some of the nosologies of the future, I think you've written about this yourself, the idea of putting mood and anxiety back into the same group, as it were, a basket of overall mood disorders, is mm. one of the new moves and trends in classification. Yes, I mean, the DSM is going to require um, doctors in the United States and people who use the DSM around the world to assess anxiety whenever they diagnose depression, and that's not before time. Yes. Um, and I think that because they're very reluctant to alter their concept of depression, that's probably the best compromise the DSM can get to. Where I, The work I'm doing with ordinary doctors, though, it's quite important that we get them to understand that the common disorder is anxious depression. That is what most people in general medical settings are complaining of, often in association with other problems like um, alcohol problems and physical diseases. How do we get those ideas out, do you think, on a broader, wider scale? What can we do to get people to take on a more, as it were, sophisticated model of understanding of mental illness? I think that um, you're asking a question which isn't quite the same as what a classification is for, but I can see that it's related to it. I think that putting forward the complex classifications that doctors use would be very off-putting and uh, probably wouldn't help much. And people derive a better understanding of psychological disorder from people they've known and from novels and plays and television programs. So and folk classification of yeah. mental illness, you mean? Well, they form folk classifications. Um, There's a fair amount of evidence suggests that those are quite valid and map quite neatly onto, as it were, the broader categories. Well, well you, you, can actually, you can actually think that the ICD is a folk classification. Mm. Um, this idea of the folk classification brings me on to a really, what for me is a fascinating question about how diagnoses change with the times. You've mentioned that one of the important things about diagnosis is that it should be driven by scientific research, but mm. do you not think there are slightly less, or should we say slightly less scientifically honourable motives at work here? The insurance industry, the, the status of psychiatrists. One thinks, for example, of post-traumatic stress disorder. That was probably brought in as a valid concept as a result of quite a lot of political lobbying after the Vietnam War. I mean, what do you think of the forces that underpin, the, are behind the evolution of our... Well, modern folk hang classification. On a the post-traumatic stress disorder was just a dramatic name given to a well-recognised syndrome. Uh, you only have to think of shell shock after the First World War and the, the, the various psychological disorders that follow extreme traumatic stress are well written up long before anybody thought of PTSD. Right. Um, but does PTSD cleave nature at the joins? Well, it's... Uh, it's a definite disorder. It has basically the features of anxious depression, which are absolutely ubiquitous to common psychological disorders. 
and it has one or two additional symptoms. And unlike schizophrenia, it's a concept that seems to come with etiology built into its definition. You have to have you have to have the T in PTSD to to have the condition. Yes, because you can't have the flashbacks unless unless you're flashing back to something. So um, it is a a rare example where muddling the cause with the syndrome is a good idea. Whereas on the other hand, we're throwing out bereavement for depression, which seems to be a a core, you know, abandoning the significance of the causative factor. No, it isn't. Um, Most people, when they're bereaved, get over it without any treatment. And um, although they are still unhappy and sad, to use your concept, um, they aren't functioning as though they're depressed. They are still, they're managing to sleep Mm. somehow, they're managing to get their ordinary work done. But quite a lot of bereaved people aren't like that. And to say there's nothing wrong with them, they're just bereaved, Mm. is to deny them interventions which would help them. What do you say then to the cynics that would suggest that that is simply opening up the whole panoply of human distress for for our personal and professional status and benefit? Well, it's nothing to do with our professional status and benefit, is what I'd say to that. I only treat people who come and ask for treatment. Mm. I don't go around um, offering treatment like a soap salesman to people who are bereaved. Uh, They have to come and ask for help, and I just don't understand the question, really. The question you asked me earlier, we never really got round to, which is more interesting, which is the extent to which um, the diagnostic system this is particularly true of the DSM, is linked to payment for doctors. And there is definitely a degree to which it is. And uh, that if there are people coming to American psychiatrists for help, the the diagnostic system has to be adjusted to allow that to be reimbursable. But is that not also a pressure that's incumbent upon researchers? you will only be able to get the funding for that all-important research if your patients fulfil this particular diagnostic category. Otherwise, it's bye-bye research funding. Surely there's a, that same vested and perverse interest is at work for the whole of the people who define the terms in the first place. No, I don't think it is. Uh, I think that it's absolutely essential to have operational definitions for what we're talking about. And you get yourself slid back into endlessness if you abandon that and uh, and you don't have any divisions between the, the, the numerous forms of psychological distress that there are. So you're saying that whatever the doubts we may have about the modern validity of our systems, which is under constant revision, we've got to start from somewhere. Yes, uh, I, it goes back to a paper that Elliot Slater wrote in the early 60s where he said that um, whether schizophrenia was a category or not we had to give it an operational definition because you can't do any research unless you do that's the starting point of research you have to say what it is you're looking at yeah. you you aren't looking at the human condition yeah. the human condition is not researchable yes. it's it's too heterogeneous and wide and, unless you're a poet or a writer perhaps well that's not a research that's a that's a <laughs> re- inquiry, that's surely. an inquiry and an expression yeah. of the complexity right. of, of of human existence but from the point of view of medical research, you have to have operational definitions. Okay, fair enough. So operational definitions and systematic scientific rather than poetic inquiry is the way forward for psychiatry. But here we are still using essentially Kraepelinian explanations of schizophrenia that were made 100 years ago. 
are you saying that after everything we've thrown, shed loads of money and research at the concept of psychosis, we're still using a same 100-year-old definition? That's not exactly scientific progress, is it? But we aren't still using it. It hasn't completely gone, is what you can say about it. Um, the demonstration of the huge genetic overlap between bipolar illness and schizophrenia and the fact that what were fondly called first-rank symptoms of schizophrenia can all occur in mm. mania has driven a coach and horses through Kraepelin's um, neat idea. You've talked, I think I say, very convincingly about the need for science to inform and enhance the validity of our, our diagnosis as we move forward, and you've given some very interesting ideas of how we might do that. But could I just ask you about the future? Where do you think the promise of genetics and imaging is going to take classifications in the years to come? I'm not sure it's going to do much to classification in the years to come, but I could well be wrong about that, and um, one has to await events. I would have to observe that so far it has had almost no effect. Surely that localization, at microscopic level of cerebral function to a manifest human problem will take our classifications forward in some way, won't it? I don't think looking at a particular nucleus is... I think you have to look at, at, at neural systems rather than particular nuclei. You nuclear. mean a global, real-time function of the brain? Yes, mm. yes. And uh, so I think you have to look at functional connections um, in the CNS to yes. begin to understand that. Nor is there any reason to suppose that there will be an exact correspondence between one neural system and a disease. That's very naive thinking to think that. I don't think human beings are like that. And the idea that one system gives you one disease, I doubt if it does. Yes, which and would suggest, uh, therefore, that a classification based on etiology is a long way off, if a ever. A long way off, yes. yes if ever, off. really, given the gobsmacking complexity yeah. of what it means to be a human being. Well, I think that etiology is... We, I mean, that's one of the ways we have come a long way. We used to think of genetic disorders and, and environmental disorders. That's ridiculous. You have to understand what the genetic component of any disorder is, what the early environmental circumstances are, which are more common in that disorder, and how particular neural systems are, on the whole, functioning differently in that disorder. But the idea that there's a neat correspondence is just not on its ridiculous really. Even though the promise of the simplicity of a new correspondence seems very tempting for some Well people. I think you're slipping into the sort of thing you started off by criticising of um, pigeon holding, box ticking, you know this, it's another form of box ticking yes. to, to do that uh, that's why I think that it will have some effect on the way we conceptualise disorders but I doubt whether it will be quite as revolutionary as um, optimists think it might be. Professor Gilbert, thanks very much for talking to me. Not at all.